Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossum. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is Achy Breaky Ribs, or in other words, we're talking about regional anaesthesia for blunt chest trauma with a very special guest, Dr. Anthony Hayde. As always, in this podcast, we and our guests represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Hayde began his anaesthetic training in Brisbane, followed by a one-year fellowship at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, where he focused on regional anaesthesia. His interests include ultrasound-guided regional anaesthesia, human performance and patient safety, and quality improvement. Dr. Hayde is a primary examiner. He also works full-time at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, so sees a lot of blunt chest trauma. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Excellent. So, look, fractured ribs are common and they're a major cause of morbidity and mortality in hospital. What is your approach to rib fractures? Well, my approach is uh, mainly just trying to provide the best quality analgesia with the minimal amount of side effects. So that's why regional anaesthesia is quite well suited. Uh, you can, you can uh, anaesthetise the whole thorax, so it doesn't matter how, how severe the injury, uh, you should be able to get some good regional analgesia Excellent. And look, in terms of your goals, what is your main goal of the analgesia when it comes to your patient? So most regional anaesthesia, you're aiming to have good pain scores, comfortable patient. But the other problem with rib fractures, if you have a lot of pain, you can't breathe. And if you can't breathe deeply, you end up getting atelectasis and respiratory morbidity. So with rib fractures, it's even more important uh, to, to get good analgesia because in addition to the normal patient-centered metrics, we want to minimize respiratory morbidity. This is especially the case for older patients, for patients with pre-existing respiratory illness, and for patients with very severe injuries. And so in terms of your sort of indications um, for various types of regional anesthesia for blunt chest trauma and rib fractures, how do you sort of go about deciding who gets what? So the first step is, do they need regional anesthesia? So a lot of your younger patients with very minor injuries, they might be well suited for opioids or adjuncts, things like tramadol, ketamine, PCAs. Uh, And then the general trend is the older they are and the more severe the injuries, the more likely I will offer them something. So thoracic epidural is probably the gold standard. uh, And that is still a very good option for people with severe chest trauma, bilateral broken ribs, fractures of the sternum mm-hmm. um, and but nowadays uh, there's other opportunities a lot of a lot of chest trauma is unilateral so if you have a lot of broken ribs on one side of the chest and no injuries on the other thoracic paravertebral is my go-to mm-hmm. sometimes if you have lots and lots of broken ribs let's say 10 you might actually put two paravertebrals on the same side mm. and then uh, you have other options uh, which I use less frequently, like erectospinae plane blocks. I tend to do them only if I can't do a paravertebral or if a patient is anticoagulated and, and therefore paravertebrals and epidurals are contraindicated. Mm, okay. So just to run through, um, so you were saying that you would choose your thoracic epidural clearly for bilateral rib fractures, um, fractures involving the midline structures like such as the sternum, uh, and then if you've got, you know, say 11 or 12 ribs on one side, you go for an epidural then. Yep. Um, and I'd probably add a flail segment to that too. Would you include that in your list? For yeah, I guess so. Mm. I guess so. And I guess the other one, a lot of our patients are multi-trauma, so they might have had a laparotomy. Mm. And so obviously if they have broken ribs and they got a laparotomy for a mm. splenectomy, the mm. epidural will be will be very good for abdominal analgesia as well. That's yeah. a very good point. 
And what sort of coverage would you expect from a thoracic um, paravertebral block? So a, a thoracic paravertebral should give you pretty good spread for four levels and then by the time you get to the fifth and sixth level, it starts to spread less. Mm. The other thing is the ribs are not equal. As you, anyone who's broken a bone knows that when you break a bone, let's say your arm or your leg, the pain comes from when that bone is moving. Mm. And that's why uh, doctors put plaster casts on and immobilize with open reduction uh, surgically. Now, the problem with ribs is when your ribs are broken, you 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 have to keep breathing. So every time you mm-hmm. breathe, that's what gives you your pain. And I do find that the ribs that are further down the, the lower end of the rib cage, you end up, end up getting more pain. So mm-hmm. if you have a, a rib fracture, uh, let's say eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh rib, mm-hmm. that would tend to hurt more than a first, second, third, fourth rib. Mm-hmm. But yeah. my general pro- my general trend is between four and six ribs should be covered by one paravertebral. And then if you have a seventh, eighth, ninth rib, you would either do a thoracic epidural or or two paravertebrals. And when I'm doing the two paravertebrals, I would always do the the bottommost one first Mm. and then see how much analgesia that patient gets. Mm. And then if they're unhappy, add the second paravertebral further up on the the chest. That's really good advice. I I do find that lower is easier as well. And that's also Mm. to do with the anatomy of the spine. If If you take a look at a skeleton and you look at the first thoracic vertebrae versus the 12th thoracic vertebrae, Obviously, the, the vertebrae get bigger as you go down the spine, mm. and that means that the spacing between the transverse processes are also getting bigger. Mm, so good another good reason why if you have, let's say, fractured ribs 3 through to 11, I would start by trying to analgese the, the bottom ribs before I go on to the top ribs. Okay. So just in terms of general um, indications for regional anaesthesia and blunt chest trauma, how do you sort of approach the patient um, in terms of what you're offering and how you kind of throw it to them. And then also, um, we often also block intensive care patients as well, don't we? So, Yeah, so most patients, they've been referred to me by somebody, either mostly at our hospitals, the acute pain management service, mm-hmm. sometimes by an ICU physician, sometimes by an ED physician. But generally, they're, they're a patient who's got fractured ribs, we've tried systemic analgesia, and it's failed. Mm. It's either failed because it gives them side effects, but no desired effects, mm. or it's failed because it has not provided any any benefit at all. Mm. So there's a lot of overlap to a, a laboring parturient. Mm. So they're already experiencing the pain, which makes it different to a lot of regional analgesia, where mm. you do a block on a limb before they have their operation, mm. and they don't know how much pain they're going to have. Mm. If a patient is 65 or over, if they have four or more broken ribs or if they have respiratory pathology, I would be more encouraging that they try the try the regional mm. anesthesia option. Mm. If they're a patient who is already in respiratory failure or they've been extubated and failed, yeah. then I would be more encouraging. But generally speaking, you don't have to talk a patient into mm. regional analgesia in this situation. They generally have pain and they would like the pain to be better. It also helps once you've done dozens or hundreds of paravertebrals and epidurals, you actually have a pretty good handle on which patients are going to derive benefit. Mm. And so if you outline the pros and cons, many patients will, will be keen to mm. undergo the procedure, even though it's not a fun procedure to have. It's, mm. it's pretty well tolerated by most patients, and most patients mm. are very satisfied and happy afterwards. Yeah, it, it, it's very similar. You're right. I mean, it is quite satisfying, isn't it, when you take someone who's so uncomfortable? And it's a bit like that labour epidural. Mm. We get that little win. Yeah. And you also have the benefit of knowing that you've actually potentially affected their outcome to some extent, particularly in terms of their length of stay in hospital or risk of going to intensive care. Yeah, there is there is some evidence uh, that good analgesia, regional analgesia, reduces your respiratory morbidity 
and uh, and reduces your length of stay in hospital. I consider that like icing on the cake and a nice added mm, bonus. That's yeah. not front of my mind when I'm approaching an individual patient, mm. but certainly from the point of view of a of a hospital system, that's certainly something that you might see with a with a mm. with a good system of regional analgesia. And I actually find that uh, it, it it is actually more satisfying when you compare to the labouring parturient because when you compare the two the fractured rib patient actually probably benefits more. Mm. Uh, you've got a pain that's constant and severe. It doesn't come and go. Uh, you've got a pain that's going to be there for days and days. It's not going to go away when the baby mm. comes out. Mm. You've got a typically a patient population who are older and sicker. Mm. So we currently have a model whereby women in labour can have an epidural if they want it. Mm. But a lot of the time that same model doesn't apply to fractured rib patient fractured mm. rib patients and I think that's maybe backwards I think if mm. what we want to do is take the model that is so that that serves our laboring women so well and try and apply that to other areas of the hospital and other patients that will have probably the same amount of benefit maybe even more yeah that's a good point it's a really interesting way of looking at it as well I think you're onto something there that's very true yeah that's probably institution dependent right yeah. you know it depends, depends on, on expertise yeah. that's right yeah. and and the reason the reason is historical um, but also you need to have a system whereby you can have an anaesthetist who's free to go to these patients, mm. uh, irrespective of whether there's a surgical operation happening. Alrighty, so Anthony, we're all familiar with the contraindications for thoracic epidural anaesthesia. Uh, what are some of the contraindications for some of the unilateral techniques, for example, paravertebrals and erectospinae blocks? I think the contraindications to thoracic epidural also apply to thoracic paravertebral, mm. mainly coagulopathy and overlying skin that is infected or broken in some way, which you do sometimes find in people with blunt chest trauma. They have scrapes and Mm. cuts and skin taken off and you just can't do the procedure. There's no other contraindication, I don't think. In many cases, there's there's whatever the opposite of a contraindication is. If Mm. the patient already has an ICC in situ Mm. to treat a hemothorax or a pneumothorax, they've already got the treatment for one of the complications of, of paravertebral. Yeah, so in some ways, the the downside of doing a paravertebral and inadvertently causing a pneumothorax is less if they already have the treatment in situ. Mm. So those are actually good patients to get started on for, for beginners. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. It's similar to doing a sciatic catheter in a patient who's already on the, on the table having a baloney amputation. Mm. The impact on that patient, if you do happen to have an injury to the nerve, is is yeah. much less than whatever the injury is from the surgery. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, Anthony, how do you perform a paravertebral block? Do you have any little tips or tricks for our listeners? Uh, I do. So the obvious things is you need to know your anatomy and, and that there's plenty of textbooks and, and websites and YouTube mm. uh, clips that can help you do that. Uh, I When I teach trainees, most of the paravertebrals I'm involved in, I'm, I'm I'm not the one doing the procedure, I'm teaching someone else. And Mm. I find that an ultrasound-assisted technique is probably the best way to go. Mm. So the first thing you need to do is decide, am I going to sit my patient up or lie them on their side? Mm. Sometimes if they're ventilated in ICU, you can't sit them up. Mm. But most patients, I would try to sit them up, even though it causes a bit of discomfort. Mm. Uh, The next thing is to scan the back with an ultrasound probe. The purpose of that scan is to get an idea in your mind of where the bony landmarks are. And what I do is I actually draw some lines on the patient's back. Uh, and then once I've done that, I put the ultrasound away and then perform a blind technique the same way paravertebrals have been done for, for decades. Which probe do you use when you're scanning? 
So if you can get away with using a five centimeter linear probe, that is the okay, preferred one. But many patients who are overweight or obese, you mm. cannot get away with using that probe and yeah. you would have to use a six centimeter curvy linear okay. just so that you have the depth. Excellent. Whatever probe you have, you need to be able to see the shadows of the transverse process and ideally the pleura and the lung mm. underneath. Mm. Definitely. And so you'd be aiming for, uh, particularly for a paravertebral, it's quite important to get the level right, isn't it, to make your sort of bang. Say you've got four or five ribs, you kind of want to be right in the middle. So do you count the ribs using the ultrasound? Or? You can do. Uh, yeah. Sometimes just being in the ballpark is good enough. But if you have, say, ribs 7 through to 11 broken, I would usually aim for the 10th rib. Uh, so I don't aim for the middle. I aim for the, okay. the next rib up from the bottom most fractured rib. Uh, now, if you have four fractured ribs, then that's going to be the middle. Uh, but if you have five or six, uh, I tend to focus on the bottom because the bottom ones are the ones that are more painful. Yeah. And the and the, I find the local anaesthetic spreads up more than it spreads mm. down. Okay, that's really interesting. All right. Um, and so, in terms of performing the procedure, we've talked about marking the you know marking the radio and anything specific. Um... Yeah. So the the I find that the Investing the time in ergonomics and positioning is a big mm. payoff that people mm. often neglect for regional analgesia in particular. Mm. Uh, the, the actual lines that I like to draw on the patient's back is to, uh, to, I start lateral because the ribs are very easy to identify laterally and then I scan medially until I see the shape of the shadow of the ribs change. That marks the lateral most border of the paravertebral space where the transverse process mm. joins the rib and I do a vertical line at that point, because I do not want to go any further lateral than that point. Then I scan a centimetre or two more medial towards the midline until I see the sawtooth lamina, and I can't go any more medial than that point. So I do two uh, tram tracks Mm -hmm. that are usually about two centimetres apart, and that's my little window. I then find a shadow of a transverse process that looks good, and then I mark a horizontal line that intersects there. And if you're beginning, you might want to mark two or three transverse processes because Mm. you can't always uh, get it in perfectly first time. And the key there is you want to have as as little movement as possible between when you mark the patient's back with your pen and when you're actually doing the needling. Because whenever a patient moves, the surface anatomy moves relative to what's underneath. And the more obese your patient the more margin for error there is because the greater the distance from the skin to the transverse process. Yeah. So following on from that, do you perform a sterile ultrasound when you're scrubbed or do you mark the skin before you scrub? So for an ultrasound-assisted technique, which Mm. is what I generally recommend, especially for beginners and intermediate, Mm. I recommend scanning Mm. on the intact skin, doing the marking and then putting everything away and then essentially doing a blind technique with the same sterility as what you would do for an epidural. Okay, cool. I do an ultrasound guided real-time technique as well sometimes, but I do not recommend that unless you're an advanced practitioner because yeah. you basically need three hands. Yeah. Uh, you need to have uh, an oblique angle. It's not really in plane or out of plane. The benefit you get from a real-time guided technique is you can inject your saline and then you can see on the screen whether you have black saline spreading above the costotransverse ligament or mm. below the costotransverse ligament. Mm. Because the end point from a sonographic point of view is not the needle tip necessarily. Yeah. It's blackness going below the costotransverse ligament, yeah. pushing the pleura and the lung away. Mm. So I like to do that if I've tried blindly and failed okay. or if I've got someone who's very obese mm. uh, and I'm having trouble. 
But, mm. but, but you would probably, if you're beginner or intermediate, the ultrasound assisted is best because mm. you don't need that third hand to hold a sterile ultrasound. Yeah, that's or, great advice. And also goo gets in the way. Mm, that's yeah. a very good point. Slides around. So you said you made your me, made, make your medial mark and lateral mark. Now, the classic landmark teaching of a paravertebral is to find the spinous process and then go two and a half centimetre lateral. How do you find your ultrasound marking technique compared to the blind technique in terms of you know, how accurate is the two and a half centimetre guide? In this I mean, it, it marries up pretty well, but there's always inter-individual inter variability. I must admit, I don't, uh, once I find the sonographic technique, I don't then routinely go back and check if it's mm. in the right spot mm. compared to the landmark. Mm. I think the ultrasound by definition is always going to be at least as good. And the better you get an ultrasound, the more superior mm. it is. Uh, if you're someone who's been doing blind technique for, for 10 years and you've got a good technique that has a low failure rate and a low side effect rate, I, I don't know that ultrasound would, would add much value to you. Yeah. Uh, but if you're just learning the technique, mm. I, I definitely recommend ultrasound uh, to mm. identify that transverse process. Good advice. And, and similarly, um, you know, the classic when you read the, the stuff online still, it'll be like, do not go more than 1.5 centimetres past the transverse mm. process. I suppose my issue with that is that the transverse process itself has a bulk and it's never really been defined whether it's, you know, the middle of that process or the back, you know, exactly that distance. And I'm finding with the body habitus of our patients increasing over the years on average, you sometimes do have to go that sort of 1.5 to 2 centimetres to actually get through the ligament and get a loss of resistance. Are you finding you, something you definitely You definitely do need to do that. Mm. So I think the reason why that rule came about was to stop people going into the lung. Yeah. And I think the rationale was that you're better off doing a technique that ultimately fails than doing a technique that is dangerous. Mm. But if you look at the transverse process with the ultrasound, uh, the more lateral you go, the more superficial it is. And then the more medial you go, the more deep mm. it is. So uh, it depends on where you're contacting the transverse process. Are you contacting it on its lateral most tip or its most mm. medial tip? Mm. The second thing is you never have a direct line with your needle that takes the shortest amount of time. Exactly. So if yeah. your needle is angled medially or laterally, or if you're starting a little bit low and you've got a bit more Angle up, yeah. angling up, you, you might you might easily go two centimetres before you get a loss of resistance. Because mm. it's not as the crow flies, right? You Correct. Know, yeah, you're going, mm, that's going on a fulcrum effect. So. And I think if you get if I get to two centimetres and I haven't got loss of resistance, mm. I, would, I would probably, if I was feeling the ligament myself and I knew what I was feeling, I'd probably be happy to keep going. But uh, I do get a bit... I, I do tell my trainees not to go more than two centimetres. Mm. And if I get to two centimetres, that might be a situation where I'd yeah. put a sterile probe on, have a look, mm. inject some saline and see mm. where the saline spreads. Does it spread above the ligament or below? Because if it mm. spreads above the ligament, by definition, you just have to keep going until yeah. you get through the ligament. Mm. And yeah. the, the ligament is not as easy to feel compared to your epidural. It's mm. got a different feel. You do still have the same loss of resistance uh, technique, but it can be a bit more subtle if you're not if you're not mm. sure. And so, in terms of that safety profile, I think um, we've talked about it before. But either using your local needle, or sometimes if it's someone bigger that the local needle isn't long enough, I use a spinal needle and actually you know use a spinal needle to contact the transverse process, pinch it at the surface of the skin, and then actually measure your depth. Do you have anything? And you, you do similar? Yeah, I, I don't routinely do that. I if you use a thirty-eight millimeter. Mm. Need sharp needle for your local. You can often contact it because you mm. can you can push a little bit more and get to four centimeters. Mm. Most transverse processes in, in average size people, you'll contact at about four centimeters, mm. give or take. Yeah. Uh, and then if I don't, I, I just I just contact the transverse process with my TUI before I take the introducer out. Because the other thing is when you are doing a midline thoracic or lumbar 
epidural, the needle is going through ligaments. And so if you are applying pressure to the plunger the whole time, no saline's coming out the other end because mm. the ligaments are holding it in. Mm. That's not the case with thoracic paravertebrals. You're going through the paraspinous muscles or the erector spinae muscle. Mm. So if you apply pressure to the plunger, the saline will leak out into the muscle and that can be confusing. Mm. So that's why it's very important to touch the tip touch the tip of the needle with the transverse process, then remove the introducer, then apply your plunger, and you're only doing your loss of resistance from the point where you've contacted the transverse process mm. forwards, which is mm. only going to be usually between one and two centimetres. Mm. So there's so much to talk about with regional anaesthesia for rib fractures uh, that we're going to have to come back for another episode. Anthony, thanks so much for your time, and we'll see you for another episode. Thanks for having me. Well, it's been a fantastic discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you could spread the word to follow us on your favourite podcast platform and even review us. If you know someone that you think would make a great interviewee, let us know or you have any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. 